Bam. This is Doug Chabot, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour. You are tuned into episode 4.5 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS by MND, an avalanche of solutions, and our good friends at 10 Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside, with additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Hope everyone had a nice friends and family filled Thanksgiving holiday. A nice round of storms has brought what seems to be enough snow to ride in many zones and I imagine a lot of people got out during the holiday weekend. I'm heading down to Lake Tahoe this week to teach a few avalanche courses and the eagerness of students to learn how to make more informed decisions in the backcountry environment always stokes me out. It also reminds me how we all should continue our education. An avalanche course isn't just a one and done thing. Our skills get rusty and we can always incorporate more tools to the toolbox. The standalone one day avalanche rescue course is a great place to start with your recurring education. Think of it kind of like that CPR class that you take every two years to stay current. There's such a high demand for avalanche courses these days, which is great. Just don't forget to re-up your skills and knowledge base if it's been a while. You never know, it could save your life. Thanks to TAS by MND, makers of the Gazex, Gazflex, Obelex, and Daisy Bell Avalanche Hazard Mitigation Systems. Oh, but they do so much more too, from weather station systems to avalanche detection systems to passive avalanche fencing solutions. TAS has been the leader in natural hazard control systems for over 20 years. If you're interested in learning more, check out www.tas.fr and give them a follow on Instagram to see some rad pics of these systems in action. They are at TAS by MND. Ten Barrel Brewing sure knows how to party. Although I didn't make it to the Pray for Snow parties this year, I saw some pictures and I'm not going to miss it next year for sure. If you haven't checked out their two new movies, Hold My Beer and Walks This, they are coming to a town near you and it's not too late. Check out the calendar of events on their website for more details. Ten Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside. The A3 has recently heard from an anonymous, very generous donor that will be matching donations made to the organization up to $5,000 through December 31st. Donate to this great organization and for the next month, your money will go even further. They also have some great prizes right now if you donate. You'll be entered to win a pair of Scarpa ski boots of your choice, as well as an Arva Neo 5 Avalanche transceiver. During my travels this fall, I spent a good bit of time talking to people in Bozeman, Montana. I caught up with Doug Chabot, who is the director of the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Center. We chat about the expansive nature of the forecast area that Doug and his team forecast for, the variety of user groups and demographics that depend on their forecasts, and also some of the other projects Doug has a great passion for. 
Without further delay, here we go with Doug Chabot. Doug, thanks for making the time. You bet. Welcome thanks, to the Caleb. show. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I was hoping you could just introduce yourself and give us your background, your past and current roles within the guiding and snow and avalanche arena. Sure. I've been I've been director of the Avalanche Center here in Bozeman. It's the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Center uh, since 2000, so quite a while. Before that, I was working part-time at the Avalanche Center. Uh, Carl Brooklyn hired me, um, and I was working part-time there and part-time ski patrolling. And uh, so I was working at Bridger Ball uh, for nine years um, doing ski patrol, and that's kind of where I cut my teeth on learning about snow and learning about avalanches and taking a real interest in it. Um, I didn't learn to ski until a little later in life. I was... Uh, Grad, I went to Prescott College in Arizona, and that's really the first time that I started backcountry skiing on little skinny telemark skis, um, and it's really launched me into a, an outdoor career with avalanche forecasting uh, in the winter, and then in the summer, being a climbing guide is what I've done a lot of over the years. It's certainly nice to have that contrast of, of seasonal work, I'm sure. Yes, yeah. See, see, yeah. It, the key usually is you find one season, which is easy, you know, and in this case it was the winter. Winter just, you know, was easy. And then it's like, well, what am I going to do in the in the summer to kind of round it out? And climbing guides certainly fit the bill um, just because I love climbing and love traveling. And so I got to guide in a lot in Alaska and the Northwest uh, and then in the Tetons as well. So I've been able to kind of move around and enjoy life a bit. And what's your passion around climbing? Is it rock or ice or alpine? More alpine. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly ice is what brought me to Bozeman. One of the big things that brought me to Bozeman was the ice climbing, just because there's not a whole lot of places in the West that has reliable ice. And I've always kind of gravitated towards ice climbing, but I, I certainly love alpine climbing. Right. Well, it seems like Bozeman has it all with some ice and, and some great skiing here as well. Yes. It's a good place to have a life. So where'd you grow up, Doug? Well, I grew up in New Jersey, uh -huh. so um, yeah, not many people know that. Try and keep it quiet, but uh, yeah, I grew up in New Jersey and did not have a uh, real outdoor-oriented life growing up. That that kind of came came later. I was in the urban jungle, is where I where I grew up. Okay, and then found your way to Prescott College. I did. I uh, just got into the outdoors sort of slowly, like you know, first was skateboarding riding a bike, some surfing on the Jersey coast was my first kind of foray into like outdoor things. And then, uh, I took a survival course, um, when I graduated high school, one month survival course and that, I just had a wild hair to do something in that, that summer in between college and, and high school. And, uh, and that blew my mind and kind of set my, set my course for the, my life in a way it, it changed my life and that I knew I wanted to spend my time outside okay um so let's start to unpack a little bit about the gallatin national forest avalanche center it's a it's a pretty well-known center here and and bozeman seems to be a, a great place to live and work so how large of an area are you all forecasting for and and what are the different ranges within the forecast area so we, our forecast area is pretty large. It's about 1,700 square miles. And so uh, north of Bozeman, it includes the, the Bridger Range is the, the main range there. And then south of Bozeman are two mountain ranges, the 
Madison and the Gallatin Ranges, and they extend south all the way to Yellowstone National Park. And so we also forecast for both of those areas. And then also Cook City, which is uh, by the northeast entrance of the of the park. And the reason we forecast there is because it gets so much use uh, for snowmobiling and now certainly backcountry skiing. So uh, the backcountry use is what drives where we're forecasting uh, and not. So it seems like you have a pretty diverse user group that are accessing the forecast here. Yeah, we've got a lot of snowmobilers. Um, you know, West Yellowstone snowmobile capital of the world. Uh, Cook City is, I mean, that's that's like a, you know, the mecca for snowmobilers. Like they want to, if you're a serious snowmobiler, you want to go through Cook City at least once. Um, just because the mountains are big, the paths are big. It's it's pretty exciting uh, snowmobiling out there. And now we're seeing a lot more backcountry skiing as well. Backcountry skiers are all over the place. It's pretty popular, especially we have a university. We've got lots of young adults coming, wanting to get after it. Um, and then we also have uh, ice climbers. So Highlight Canyon south of Bozeman has very reliable ice every winter. And they're also ice climbers. Uh, they also get exposed avalanche terrain and so we're concerned about them as well mm. so it seems like you know with the with kind of the snowmobile capital of the world here there must be people traveling here um, whether they're coming to ski at the ski areas or to snowmobile out of cook city or west yellowstone so that, that must pose a little bit of a challenge to reach that population yeah, it's a, it's a little bit different tactic than uh, than the locals. So, you know, Bozeman is a destination area for vacationers. They're either flying into the airport to go skiing, um, or they might be driving in from the Midwest to North Dakota to go snowmobiling. And so not being a local, what we try and do is we try and get them avalanche, relevant avalanche information at kind of the point of contact in those communities. So if they're going to West Yellowstone or Cook City, Chances are they're staying at a hotel. They're going to be eating at restaurants. Uh, they're going to be checking in at snowmobile shops um, or if you're skier ski shops. And those points are where we want to make sure we've got some good information and education going on. So an example is there might be the avalanche advisory um, is posted in the hotel. Um, the people in the restaurant know that there's an avalanche warning out. And so they'll be warning people. They'll be letting people know during breakfast. Um, so we really work very closely with these communities to keep have them help us get the word out because people don't always know um, that we're around and that the service is offered um, so yeah they they're key to, to our messaging yeah it seems like I've always been impressed with the social media presence that you all have as well yeah and the social media actually really plays into the people that are coming from out of town because they might not read the advisory every day but when we post a YouTube video or a Facebook posts, like they definitely pay attention to that um, or webcams or things like that. But the social media is really easy for us. Um, it, it's a really easy way to get the word out to so many people so fast. And you can read about something, but to see it really is, it's, it really changes, you know, it changes how you think. It changes what kind of decisions you're going to make. So if I write in the advisory that, hey, we were getting, you know, our stability tests were showing that it's weak and dangerous and it's unstable out there, you know, it's one thing. But if, if I show you a video of me hitting a column and then it just snaps off really fast and clean, you know, you're going to go, whoa, holy mackerel, you know, and that that's going to 
that'll you'll remember that if you go out the next day, which is what we want. Right. And so do you find yourselves and, and the other forecasters most field days are you putting out of a video? Yeah, most. Uh-huh. Like like yeah, most. Right. It's rare that we don't. Um, because and we we treat it almost as an afternoon update, you know. So we'll go after forecasting, we go in the field, you know, we make a video. When we come back that afternoon, we'll do a fast edit on it, get it up online late that afternoon, just so people now they'll have some relevant information that's timely if, if you're going out the next day. Sure. So instead of waiting for us to tell you in the morning, you'll have a little heads up the night before as to what we're thinking, um, and we find that to be really useful. And I find it useful for myself. Like if, if I'm have a day off and Alex, the other forecaster, is heading out and he makes a, a video, I'm definitely watching it just to kind of stay up on what he found and what he thinks I should be looking for. Sure. And best place to find that on Instagram would be? Uh, it, we're the Avalanche guys, but it's MT Avalanche. MT Avalanche. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, so, Doug, you've been here for a while forecasting and, and maybe you could just break down kind of your general snowpack characteristics i'm sure it changes year to year um but how would you describe the snowpack here in southwest montana well um not as bad as colorado um and definitely better than the northwest i think (laughs) sorry northwest avalanche center (laughs) but uh we get um we definitely get a decent amount of snow so you know at the end of a season around cook city we could easily have 10 feet of snow on the ground you know come april anywhere from six to seven feet in other areas uh, there are some years maybe this year will be one of them um, where we get uh, some facets some depth core growing at the ground which can be a long-term problem to the whole winter um, but that is not uh, that doesn't happen every year uh, most of the time our weak layers are layers that form at the surface and then get buried. So we see a lot of either surface or, or near surface facets are our main concerns. Where um, we see a lot of interfaces where new snow falling on, older snow, you know, that becomes a, an avalanche problem that's usually short-lived um, or wind loading. And, and we get plenty of good, like 7 to 10% powder. Um, occasionally it gets really blower and it's down in that 3-4% range. Um, but it sure seems like we get in general enough. And if you buy season passes around here for the ski areas, you're usually pretty stoked. And if you're, if you have a new sled and you're planning on riding, chances are you're going to use it. Mm-hmm. Is it always this cold here? It's, it's like the, right now we're, we're recording on October 30th and it was minus nine in my vehicle this morning. Yeah. Thankfully it's not usually that cold, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not, you know, it happens. Yeah. <laughs> it's Montana. Yeah. So it's winter already here. It's kind of crazy. The mountains have two feet of snow and it'll be interesting to see what happens this winter. I have a feeling, well, I can almost guarantee that it's not going to be good, that only bad things are going to come of this early season snow because it's going to get faceted. Um, yeah. It seems inevitable. seems like you'd have to have a pretty consistent snowfall every few days right. right now in order for this to be buried and not be a problem. Right, I agree, and I don't <laughs> think that's going to happen. Right. So speaking of weather, what are some common weather patterns that favor this area? What are you guys looking at for big snowfalls? So there's two patterns uh, which can be drivers for big snowstorms. One is a northwest flow, 
where you know upper air is coming in out of the northwest that's moist uh, and it and the bridge arranged does exceptionally well with that um, and a lot of times it can get you know five times the amount of the surrounding ranges it can it can really hammer there with it with a good northwest flow cook city can also sometimes do well uh do well with the northwest as well uh, also and then the other flow is a southwest flow which is a lot more common and certainly west yellowstone cook city uh, they sit at kind of the head of the snake river uh, plain there and they're the first big mountains along the way and so when when we get really good southwest flows coming uh, those areas get hammered pretty hard well, it seems like no matter where it's coming from these days, then Bozeman's got it. That's right. Unless the east. If it's blowing from the east, there's never, it doesn't snow much. Right. <laughs> so it seems like a, a large area to forecast for. How many forecasters do you all have? So we have four forecasters. There's myself, Alex Marienthal, Ian Hoyer, and Dave Zinn. And, and so, yeah, we are, one of us is out with a partner. Sometimes we get out together, but um, certainly we have a, a whole bunch of people, of volunteers that come along with us. Um, but um, we're, we're out most days, um, digging holes in the snow, assessing, finding out what's happening. And we concentrate typically where the snowpack is the worst, meaning it's the most dangerous or the weakest, because we're trying to figure out what's it gonna take to maybe tip the scale to where we might have to go to an avalanche warning or we might be tracking a weak layer which is problematic to find out is it slowly getting stronger or is it kind of staying the same like you know how do we how are we going to drop the danger are we going to drop the danger what are we going to tell people to do um you know so we we really concentrate on the more problematic areas Mm -hmm. and i mean it seems like you have to travel quite a ways to to cover a lot of this forecast area yeah we put a lot of windshield time in uh you know close to ten thousand miles on our truck uh season you know driving from bozeman to west yellowstone which we do frequently it's an hour and a half drive if the roads are dry um and cook we try and spend the night at least one night because that's a three-hour drive each way Mm. although it's not unheard of to do a day trip there as well if we have to um so that's one of those you want to go with a forecaster and you can take turns driving on that it's a a monster day to do that right so so in addition to having kind of your volunteer observers and Mm -hmm. stuff um you get quite a bit of information from the community yeah we actually do really well here with uh getting lots of information Mm -hmm. i think because we have such a strong uh, snowmobile and backcountry community, local communities, um, and then we have MSU. So we have, a, you know, every year we've got 4,000, 3,500 freshmen showing up that are hungry to get out. Um, as long as we give them a little training as to what to send us, um, we start to get reasonable uh, observations, which are really, really important because with four of us in such a large area, we obviously can't get everywhere every day. So even the simplest observation of, hey, we went skiing, it was like six inches and new, wind wasn't blowing, didn't see any signs of instability, like that's helpful, even though you would think, oh, they don't wanna know that, or they already know that. It's like, no, no, we might not. So it's always good to send us a little piece, a little nugget of what you saw today. Right, and I would say that probably stands for no matter where you are, not just in southwest Montana, but send your observations to your local avalanche center. It's super helpful for the forecasters. Yes, that's true. Um, and, and so you mentioned kind of the, the proximity of MSU. You also have um, 
cup several ski areas right yeah. and msu the snow science program and then the national avalanche center in, in bozeman as well right it's a what, what is a huge advantage of forecasting here is we have some serious brain power in the community um, between the engineering department uh, the Earth Sciences Department at MSU. We have Carl Berkland at the National Avalanche Center, literally in our office. Um, you know, we have a lot of really good thinkers about snow and academics about snow. And then with the ski areas, also like long-term patrollers um, and snow safety, giving us information. Like we have a really good dialogue with everyone, uh, and we're able to bounce ideas off them, come up with research ideas, and I, I. I definitely can't give them enough credit to, you know, making us as an avalanche center as good as we are because mm. we really do lean on them, but the public might not know that um, they're really important. Sure. Ever, ever get called out? You know, like if, if you feel like you blow the forecast, is there healthy dialogue, I guess, oh, not yeah. really getting called out? But yeah, healthy no, dialogue. no, for sure. Yes. If you use the wrong term, um, <laughs> Like one of my favorites was, I think I said there's, I said the snow was light density. And I remember, uh, I think it was Ed Adams, engineer um, up at MSU. He wrote me and was like, there's no such thing as light density, you know, it's, and it's like, oh, okay, you know, and I, you know, it's just all these terms just trying to get them right. And you want to be accurate, it's sure. the thing. And, and if, when you're writing at 4.30 in the morning, you know, five in the morning, you're, you know, you're fuzzy. And even if you're not fuzzy, you don't get it right all the time. So it's always good to have people to be your guardrails to let you know if you're saying something that isn't true, or if you say something that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. um, and what we do on um, the Gallatin is we hire an editor um, where it's after the fact, but every day we, after we run our advisory, we mail it in Dick Dorworth. He's a skier and a, a writer, and he gives our advisories a heavy edit and comes back at the end of the day full of all the, the red markings of, you know, you used too many words here. You contradicted yourself in this paragraph. You, you repeated yourself. Um, you know, you used the wrong word, wrong punctuation. And it's amazing to me like how important that is to just try and constantly improve and even the greatest writers in the world need editors and you know it, it so i think that helps to get our messaging across because mm -hmm. not only social media and things but the written word like people read what we write and it's important that we communicate clearly without a lot of jargon um, and that tells people what we're seeing and what they can expect and what to do when they're mm -hmm. out there. And so then does that get republished with the edited version or is it no, just kind of for it's your just personal internal, it's for you, you growth know. as yep, a writer? Just so you can be better next time. Sure. That seems really helpful. Um, so Doug, I was wondering, how do you judge a successful forecast? Is it just so if you put out an avalanche forecast for the day and nobody gets hurt or killed, is that success or like in no, Personally, no, how, much more how do you judge success with your well, forecasting? It's a great question. And, you know, like, how do we validate our forecasts, you know? And so we validate our, our forecasts by um, we go in the field. Um, so even if, so, so many times I'll write a forecast and then I go in the field. Um, and if I'm not going in the field, certainly my coworkers are. And there's a conversation which is always happening because we're always trying to fine tune 
what it is we're trying to tell people. And so if I say something like, it's considerable today because we've had wind loads and new snow and I'm expecting you're going to see signs of instability. And then I go out there and I don't see signs of instability um, or my partners go out and they don't see it. Then when we come back, we're like, ooh, I think I overstated that. You know, mm-hmm. I think like we need to, it felt more moderate than considerable. We need to notch that down. And then we'll talk about that a lot in the next advisory. Not so much that, hey, if you noticed yesterday we blew it, you know, or we overstated it, but more like, hey, based on the evidence we found today, you know, and what's happened overnight, um, you know, we're, we're expecting the danger to be moderate. So it's really important to always be out there and making sure what you said is true. And another way that gets validated is by the public. Like I said, we have this conversation going with the public where they're writing us. And certainly if we're saying one thing and they're seeing another, uh, they'll let us know. And it's even goes so far as if we say, hey, like, um, we saw surface hoar form in these areas, but we but we have not seen it in this zone, in this, you know, we haven't seen it down by Lionhead unless you let us know. Um, we might get an email from someone saying like, hey, I was just skiing down there and I saw it. Like we, it was right there. And they send a picture and we're like, oh, okay, now we need to mention that. So it's really, it's, it's more of a conversation uh, to keep it, to keep fine tuning everything. Because mm-hmm. what, what's, amazing to me especially after doing this job for decades now is every time I go in the field um, we always have a question we're at we're trying to answer and I I can I'm pretty sure every time I go in the field I come back home with something I didn't know might be small but it might be big you know like I didn't expect to get that thing to propagate or Boy, there was more snow than I than the snow tell site was showing, or the or the weather station was showing, or you know the, the wind loading was happening, you know, mid mountain, and we didn't know that. Or I mean, it's it's kind of an infinite number of, of observations that we can take that you know we wouldn't know unless you went outside. And you know, we'd always say like to know there, go there. Like if if you can sit in your office and you can make all sorts of things up that make sense, um, but until you go. You don't know. You're not really sure, like, exactly what's happening. And many times we find things that we didn't expect. You'll mm-hmm. find a, you'll find a, a, that, oh, look, we started to form a near-surface faceted layer at the surface. Maybe it won't last. Maybe the sun will melt it, you know. But at the moment, like, we have a weak layer at the surface, which we need to track, that maybe we wouldn't have known about uh, just from sitting in the office. Like, you have to go out and see. So, um so the field verification is incredibly important to knowing whether or not we're hitting the hitting the mark on the forecasts. And yeah, there's certainly so much uncertainty in this game, right? And so right. I think what I got from from that was that going out with with targets, targeted observations, right? We you're looking for answers to a question to fill in the gaps of knowledge within the big picture. Right. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it is. And the, what's important for a listener or a reader of Avalanche Forecast is, the, is, a, is a bit, you know, to, to find out, you know, wh- what are the forecasters basing their decisions on? Are they basing it on what other people told them? Are they basing it on uh, 
like maybe what professional observer sold them? Um, is it firsthand knowledge? Is it is it knowledge from their coworkers? Like where's the information coming from? And ideally that'll come out within the body of the, the advisory because first person is always the best. I mean, if I'm gonna write about my experience from the day before, that certainly carries a little bit more weight than writing about your experience somewhere else, um, which is still better than having no experience in there. But I think that's one of the strengths of our Avalanche Center is the amount of field time that we that we do and the far, you know, the, the driving that we do to get there. Um, and the consistency of our observations makes a big difference. Mm. So you guys take a lot of observations, you, a lot of, you dig a lot of holes in the snow. Let's talk about snow pilot. So what's snow pilot, how did it come about, and what are some of the implications that it's had? So snow pilot is a, a is graphing software. It's on, it's a, on a website, snowpilot.org. Um, if you, anyone can sign up, uh, just get a username and a password and it's free. And it's a way for you to enter your snow pit data and it, and it spits out uh, a snow pit graph. And the snow pit graph is the international standards. It uses all the international nomenclature um, and symbols. And so it's a great way to learn, especially if you're a beginner, um, because it forces you to choose the correct uh, you know, symbols and, and names of things. Um, but so besides creating a graph, even more importantly in my mind is it databases all the pits. And this database can now be used by researchers to study the snow. Because before Snowpilot, uh, if, a, if someone will say Carr Berkland wanted to do a study on a compression test, he would have to send out um, a spreadsheet to his peers. He'd probably get a dozen people that were willing to help him out. And they'd have to fill out this spreadsheet every time they did a compression test of what the hardness was above and below, the, the, the break, you know, what was the score. You know, and it was a bit time consuming. And at the end of the day, you might end up with a data set of maybe 50 to 75. Uh, you know, pits. So not sometimes not most robust uh, data sets. Um, with Snowpilot, we're able to create something which has a lot more pits over a lot of areas worldwide. Um, I mean, right now it's up to 18,000 snow pits. So we've got about 4,000 users every year putting in snow pits into, into this. And, uh, and you can, you know, researchers can now filter and study whatever aspect they want. If they want to study problematic layers, they want to study fra certain fractures, um, you know, certain stability ratings, they can do all that uh, using the Snowpilot database. And like I said, it's free, it works. Um, it's great for the user because they get a slick little pit that they can look at and share with people, um, a little JPEG image. Um, and it also helps people at universities worldwide or researchers worldwide um, dig around and get some actual pretty sizable uh, numbers that they can look at, a number of pits. Like data yeah, sets. Data set. Right. Um, so could I look up a pit that's been dug in this area if I'm coming to southwest Montana to do some skiing? Can I yeah. look at a recent pit that's you been can. dug? Yes. So you can come and you can filter and say, let me see the pits in Montana. Mm -hmm. Now, as a user, you have... Um, 
you choose whether or not you want the public to look at your pits or not. So if you're working at a ski area or you you have a guide service or you just don't want to share, like that's fine. You know, you can click the box that says this is for my use only. No one gets to look at it. But there's plenty of pits in there where people are sharing. And so you can get to, to look and see maybe some basic stuff like do they have some very weak layers? How deep is the snow, you know, overall? Um, and, and really start to build a mental picture of what you might expect if you were coming up here. Oh, that's great. Well, if you do choose that private option, is that still data that's yes. available to the research community? It is. It still goes into the database. That's the that's what you're buying into your, you know, if you're going to use Snowpilot, Snowpilot gets your data, you get to choose who gets to look at your data, but researchers get it. Yeah, that seems like it makes total it's sense. Is, that's the price of yeah. kind of admission. That's great. Well, it's helping out the greater community, and, and thanks for developing that. And, and I know it's constantly being updated, um, and I find that the usability is super user-friendly. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, we're pretty proud of it. Awesome. Um, and you and, and Carl developed that? Developed that, that yeah, back in 2004. So it's just been going, changing and going strong ever since. I mean, the reason it's called Snow Pilot is because when we started it, it you used a Palm Pilot mm. to you know, remember those? Oh yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that's it. 2004, Palm Pilots were big, right? right. Before smartphones. <laughs> I remember at one point we we had to have like a PC to use. I can't remember if it was Snow Pilot or Snow Pro, right? But we had like this separate laptop that was a PC because we were using Macs, and it was now it's so much easier. Yeah, yeah. So, everything's. I mean, everything's on the internet, and it's yeah. just easy to use. So yeah, we we upgraded everything, so it's just a web based. Right. So it seems like you guys have a great presence on social media, which we already kind of touched on. But let's talk about the Avalanche Guys. What is the Avalanche Guys YouTube channel? So we've been putting up YouTube since 2006, which is the first year. I think it was the first year YouTube came out. And we thought, well, that could be kind of cool. And, uh, and so it's actually become a pretty sizable part of what we do, which is um, most days... We go outside, we make a short video clip to show you what we're concerned about that day. Um, and Avalanche Guys is the name of the YouTube channel um, that we have. And we've got, I don't know how many, I, I should know. I, we've got over a thousand videos on there. And, you know, I think we're up to like 4 million views or something. So it's pretty popular, uh, some obviously more than others. But it's just a great way for people to check in uh, if they're thinking of going outside the next day into the backcountry. And what we're using social media for is it fills in the gaps a lot of times in the afternoons when you know we put out a, an advisory in the morning, we go out in the field, in the afternoon we give you a heads up as to what we found, which might help you in your decision making as to where you're gonna go tomorrow. If you have a day off and you wanna go backcountry skiing, we'll give you some information which will help you choose choose wisely and it i seem to recall maybe watching a couple that were kind of on the dash of of the truck as you guys were heading out to the field and they were a little bit more like in-depth conversation yeah, we tried that and we're going to do more of those they were a huge hit and we called those the dashboard talks because like we were saying earlier like we spend hours driving yeah literally you know we're and 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 we would have these conversations in the truck that we thought, well, other people might be interested in these. And so we we would just choose a topic and just talk about it mm -hmm. kind of informally as we drove. And 
it was a hit and they, they might be, you know, five, seven minutes long or something of just, you know, yeah, just kind of free flowing conversation about a topic. Mm -hmm. That seems great. Well, yeah, I, I hope that you guys keep that up for sure. It seems like you all access quite a bit of terrain on snowmobiles. Yes. Just personally, how is that, how is that learning curve? For you. <laughs> That's a steep learning curve. <laughs> we started in 2000 is when we really started um, getting after it on snowmobiles. That's when we got snowmobiles at the Avalanche Center. That's when we, you know, actually started putting time into learning how to use it. It's, it's a steep, it's a pretty steep learning curve because um, it's coming as a skier, like they're just, you know, they're fast, they're big, they're heavy. And they get stuck all the time. And so, you know, that's just part of the gig. And you get in with time, you get better and you get to, it's like anything, you know, any skill. You, you know, now we're all competent riders and by no means experts, but we can get around pretty well, you know, point A to point B. And if we're going with a group, we're not necessarily holding them up. Um, so it's a, you know, for our terrain, like if we're going to forecast for snowmobilers, we have to be snowmobilers and we are like it's you know back in 2000 we weren't yet you know but now oh yeah we're just you know we're ice climbers skiers snowmobilers like we kind of do it all and we do it all at a pretty reasonable level um and it's really helpful um here in montana it's especially helpful because the backcountry here even as a backcountry skier if you want to get into some of the better areas, uh, there's snowmobile access. And so at the very least, you might need to ride in on a snowmobile or get towed behind a snowmobile up a road um, in order to get in somewhere. But even more so, we're seeing uh, skiers and snowboarders uh, just buying sleds, you know, and actually like real sleds and they're mountain riders. And when the skiing isn't any good, they're out riding and, you know, it's just another tool in the toolbox to bust out for you know a day off for people but uh for us we're we're on them a lot mm -hmm. and it seems pretty important to have some street cred with that population right you're yes. not just a skier you know and maybe like tighter pants and a puffy jacket walking up to these snowmobilers you know like you're actually a snowmobiler and, and you can hang and and maybe talk a bit about um some ways that you've been working to connect to that user group right well i mean it's it's it hasn't been that hard really um because you know we're avalanche forecasters and they want to know about avalanches mm -hmm. and they're very open incredibly open to learning and asking questions and they love seeing us out there and we love being out there when they like they'll see us digging a hole somewhere and then they'll ride up to us like, what are you guys doing? Like, oh, we're the Avalanche Center. We're digging a snow pit. And they're like, oh, my God, can we, we want to hang out. We want to, we want to see what you're doing. And, you know, you have a little mini class right there. And, uh, and so just being open and inviting. And, and then you might go riding with them afterwards. Mm -hmm. You might be like, hey, like, where are you headed? Like, you might if we tag along or, um, you know, so you can, you're just building relationships with communities. Um, what helped us a lot is, you know, in like West Yellowstone and Cook City, the business owners really you know, like what we're doing and put a lot of effort into helping us reach, you know, other riders through our education programs. And, and just with time, we've investigated in, as enough accidents. We've interfaced with enough riders and, and people in the community that we've built up that uh, legitimacy um, 
it just doesn't come overnight. You know, it just takes a while. And we've we're we're sitting pretty good right now. Um, we've got great friends and the snowmobile clubs and the shops and and it it helps. Well, it's really great to hear. And maybe we kind of make more a bigger deal out of this than it actually is. Right? I think we do now. I think right. it it. it there used to be a time when it, it was a bigger deal yeah. and it's much less of a bigger deal now. And it's less of a bigger deal because I'm seeing a lot more skiers on sleds. A, um, I'm seeing, you know, the sledding population, like they're like any other athletic group or people doing an athletic endeavor. Like, you know, it's a, these are, these are folks that are just hitting it hard and what they're doing is difficult and it mm-hmm. takes years to master. And, you know, that's their sport. That's what they're doing. And it is super, super impressive to watch someone skilled, like navigate through the trees on a snowmobile. You're like, whoa, like that dude is good. And it's, so it's kind of neat to, to see this as a respect that certainly happens. And, you know, the snow's the snow, like it's, it's, snow doesn't care whether you're skiing or snowmobiling, you know, and everyone wants to stay alive. No one wants to die or have their friends die. And so everyone's interested in, in it. I think some of the controversy in parts of the country happen when there's uh, user conflicts where maybe there's not enough public land or there's like an area where skiers want to go and snowmobilers want to go on the exact same slope at the exact same time of day. And then there's some conflicts, but in Montana, or at least around here, like that's, that's not how it rolls. Mm-hmm. Like the, everyone's pretty respectful of each other. Cook City is a great example of that where, you know, hardcore snowmobilers and also pretty hardcore backcountry skiers down there as well. And everyone's everyone's living together and having a good time and towing each other in or, you know, helping each other out. And it's, it seems to work pretty good. Right. All right. Well, there you have it. Well, and I, I have to thank Bill Radke. He submitted a question kind of getting to the core of this. So... Um, thanks, Bill, for that question. Um, on the same note, or maybe a different note, how do you think decision making for snowmobilers is different? Because there's the access is so much quicker, right? We yeah. talk a lot about slowing down when we're backcountry skiing and and coming to decision making points. Perhaps um, do you see a difference in decision making with? snowmobilers just given the pace of the day yeah it's just it's a different way that you're looking at the terrain Mm -hmm. you know and the snowpack like a skier a a skier will typically have a much more intimate knowledge of a piece of snow somewhere a piece of acreage because they're going to skin up and then ski down typically that same spot and if it's good they might even do a second lap or a third lap because they put the work in they put a skin track in um so they might stay in one area or if they're doing a tour they're they're you know you're just more intimate because you're not you're a you're moving slow enough where you can feel changes in the snow surface you can subtle wumps things like that you can notice um snowmobiles you don't you don't get that what you do get on the snowmobile is you get to see terrain and so if if you know how to look you know if you know what to look for you can find recent avalanches a lot of times. You can you can see the wind loading. You can you notice things differently. And yes, it's faster, no question. And I think one of the greatest things snowmobilers can do every now and then is just to stop and look, um, because when you're when you're riding, you're kind of looking ahead of you because you got some speed, and it's kind of hard sometimes to actually like get a really good look. You have to stop and look, and just make sure you. 
you're not missing something because you know you're not on a, on a sled many times you might not dig you know so you which means you're going to have to rely more on your observation more on what other people are seeing um and you know the good news is like i said they're because they're traveling so much they're getting a much better idea as to what's happening around versus just in one small zone um you know one of the dangers with skiing is that you get to know one area pretty well but you can't just be careful about extrapolating that like all over the place you know because you were only on one run Mm -hmm. you know you're only on one slope versus sledders have a kind of a broader you know uh view of of what's happening out there and one of the things we're trying to teach you know over the years and we've gotten a lot better at it and uh it's been well received is is digging quick pits you know we're doing it you know pit might even be the wrong word just a stability test you know just you know you can jump off a sled and if you have a saw a pro pole and a string you know you can you can do an extended column test pretty quickly and we're seeing more of that believe it or not which is really neat and uh, and i think the reason we're seeing more of that is because people see it in our youtubes mm. and they see us doing it and it's it and especially when they see what kind of data they're getting out of it they're pretty stoked All right awesome um so another listener-based question for you doug uh, Brennan Cronin asks, what is the major reason there are so few female avalanche forecasters? Any yeah. ideas there? Um, you know, I don't know the exact reason, um, but I have some ideas. And, you know, I just know in the in the outdoor world, whether it's avalanche forecasting, teaching an outward bound, climbing guide, you know, whatever, you know, you know things in the outdoors, it seems as though... You're looking at about a 10 to 15 percent are women. Um, I think the the industry, the outdoor world, is not necessarily set up in terms of you know has not been necessarily inviting maybe to women. Uh, I think there's certain hurdles you know that they have to overcome. I mean, like someone like Evelyn Lees, who's retiring this year from a long career of avalanche forecasting, could speak to the hurdles she's faced, you know, being a mom, being a, you know, having to go into the field, you know, and just, you know, the challenges that, that they have. Um, you know, what's, what is neat to see is I, I'm, this is anecdotal, but it feels and looks as though it's changing more. Like there's more women now going, like I just look at MSU uh, that are studying snow. There's there's some up and coming, uh, you know, snow scientists that are female. There's, uh, you look at some of the avalanche centers, they have like, uh, they have more females. Um, like Chugach especially is run by mm-hmm. a, a female, Wendy Wagner. Um, is doing an awesome job um, up there and, hi- and she's hiring, you know, incredible women, you know, to, to work with her. So it's, it's trying to just, yeah, get them, help them get into the pipeline, you know, and I think it's, it falls on us as me as an Avalanche Center director, um, other forecasters and universities to reach out more to potential forecasters and help them, you know, uh, get into the business. Sure. Well, I, I hope that in the future we help cultivate that even further. Um, so you're involved in a couple organizations and, and projects in Asia. I was hoping you could maybe highlight what those involve, kind of how they came about and how they're progressing. Sure. So I have a, um, a nonprofit um, that was started in 2011. It's called ICRA, 
Iqra Fund. Iqra means to read uh, in Arabic. Um, it's also the first word in the Quran. And it is a nonprofit that we have in northern Pakistan. We, meaning Genevieve Walsh, and I started that in 2011. Um, and we get girls to school, uh, mostly primary school, uh, some, which is to grade seven. And then some of them go on to secondary school or even university level. The reason this started is um, I've been going to Pakistan every year since 2000. And so I started going over there on climbing expeditions. And so most years I would go over on a climbing expedition and I would just, I love the place. I love the people, love the the mountains, love the culture, you know, loved it all. And I had an opportunity to learn about some edu you know, education, like how it worked over there, working for uh, another NGO. And in 2011, uh, Genevieve, who was my wife at the time, uh, she had got her doctorate uh, in education in Pakistan, which is where she did her thesis. And we decided, you know what, like we could do this. We could, we could easily, not easily, but we knew how to set up a nonprofit where we could really get these girls access to school. So the issue is access, because in these northern areas of Pakistan, in the mountains of Pakistan, that's where the poorest people live. And the reason they're so poor is because they have really short growing seasons, um, they're high altitude, a lot of snow. Um, it's great to go climbing there or skiing, but to live there is kind of really rough. And the real valuable land and the wealthier people live down in the valleys, far down in the valleys where the growing season is longer. They've got, you know, they might get two or three wheat harvests in a year versus up high on the upper elevations. They might get one kind of marginal wheat harvest. Um, so economically, they're disadvantaged. And when it comes to educating uh, girls, especially, there's no outlet for that. Either the schools don't offer it or there's no money. Like you might have nine children and you only want to get, you can only afford one of your kids to go to school. And that would probably be your oldest son is typically what's done. And so what we offer is um, if, if, if we remove those barriers, financial barriers, and we hire a teacher and we, you know, can buy a uniform and school supplies for your daughter, would you send your daughter to school? And the answer is almost always yes. And so that's what we've been doing. And now we've got uh, close to 4,000 kids going to school. Uh, we have a staff of 12 Pakistani people working over there year round uh, to keep this program going. It's about a half a million dollar budget a year. And so every year I go over and check on the programs and make sure they're running well and problem solve for the workers when they have problems uh, and meet the communities, meet the girls. And it's, it is, it's definitely the coolest thing I do for sure. The coolest thing I do is to, to see these, these young girls going to school, going on the high school. Um, and actually we hired for the first time last year, uh, a few women who started as gram, you know, they were in like fifth grade when we started, who now have gone all the way through university and we're hiring them as teachers. In their oh, wow. So it's really neat. That sounds super rewarding, Doug. Yeah, I love it. And yeah, it all started with climbing. It all yeah. started with going over there, just going on expeditions. Wow. What a noble cause. Um, and then you, you mentioned that you just came back this summer from doing some other work in Asia as well. Yeah. So I also am working uh, in Tajikistan and Afghanistan uh, for a nonprofit called the uh, Aga Khan Development Network. And they're a... Uh, 
they're an organization, they do a lot in the in Central Asia, but I work with the disaster relief arm of this organization. And so what they do is um, they, when there are landslides, floods, earthquakes, avalanches, you know, they have people that will go in and either help with rescues or they train villagers what to do when these things events are happening or after the event and so i started working with them in 2012 because they had a lot of avalanches that were killing hundreds of people so here in the united states i think our average is about 30 avalanche fatalities a year um, over in central asia they could see four to five hundred in a year so because entire villages can get wiped out and so we started i was working with them and we started implementing an education program where they knew when conditions were getting bad and when they could start to evacuate because you know first they had to know they were going to be they were in danger that they were in avalanche train so we helped them identify that and then we started teaching them when these certain criteria happen, certain snowfall amounts, certain little avalanches you're seeing uh, in the middle of these storms, like now might be a good time to leave. And so the organization I work for will actually advise them, you know, with my help in the winter to now evacuate. And so we'll evacuate sometimes thousands of people out of these valleys while these storms are raging. Um, to, so, they're, so they're not sitting in their homes when they when avalanches hit. And so I have to imagine that takes some weather station resources. Yeah, so we've got, a, there's not a whole lot of information going on out there, um, but we set up over the last four years, 80 weather stations. And these are manual stations um, where a man or someone in the family will go out and every morning and he'll read the temperature, the wind, the snow debt, 24 hour snowfall, total snowfall. And he, he calls it in either on a cell phone or on a radio or a sat phone. He'll call it into the, the country's head office. And there's someone there typing this information every day, year round. Uh, into a website that then I can look at every morning. And so I, when I wake up at 4 a.m., I have the data from the day before and I can see how much did it snow? Was there any avalanche activity? Uh, what are the temperatures? What's happening? And I can start to advise um, the Aga Khan folks as to what they might be looking out for. It's very basic, very rudimentary stuff, but the power of basics is unbelievable. I mean, simple things like, you know, when do we see avalanches? Well, we see them during or immediately after a storm. Like, just that alone, you know, can save lives. Mm -hmm. So having people not move in the middle of a storm, or if it's an, a really strong storm, like, to move, or if the village up the road got hit by an avalanche and you're on the same side as that village, well, you know, we might want to start thinking about moving because you're also can potentially get whacked. So it's just using simple metrics to help us make decisions to move out because we don't have snowpack data. We have snowfall data, but we don't have snowpack data. Mm -hmm. So we're just inferring things based on avalanche activity and how much snow is falling. Wow. Well, I'm sure you're certainly helping to save hundreds of lives. Yeah, it sounds it like. works. And, I, yeah. and, it, and it fits the, like, I love it over there. And it's, it's yeah. adventurous. And I get to travel with the locals. And I get to visit these really remote valleys. And um, it's, it's exciting. It's exciting work. I love it. Um, so I hope to keep doing it. 
Are some of these villages being relocated after some big events? or No, it's really hard to get anyone to want to move because this is kind of ancestral land, yeah. a lot of it. Um, so basically what we try and do is just, um, if a home is destroyed, we try and get them to not rebuild in the exact same place. Um, some villages have gone to where they'll actually move out in the winter because it's not worth staying. They'll just move their animals down valley in themselves. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, it's not like villages have been abandoned or anything. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of that ancestral land and they keep living there. And that's part of the problem. Sure. But part of the culture. Right. I mean, they're, what's, what I like about it is helping them. Like they live there. They didn't choose to be there. They were born there and mm-hmm. there. And so any help we can give them is true help. Like it's really does make a difference. Uh, for here in the U.S., you know, what I do at the Avalanche Center is I'm helping recreationists. And a recreationist first has to decide he's going to go out there. And if he decides to go out, well, then he's going to decide to a certain level of risk that day, even on a low danger day. I mean, there's a certain amount of risk that he's going to assume just or she, you know, just to recreate. Um, and so it's just, a, it's just different um, than someone who doesn't have that choice. Like they they live in the barrel of avalanches, whether they want to or not. Mm-hmm. And so trying to really help them to live, um, it's just very different than recreation based. Sure. Where could people find out more information about either the ICRA fund or, or the, this work that you're doing? So ICRA fund, we have a website. It's uh, ICRA, I-Q-R-A fund.org. Um, and so that describes all the work we're doing and everything. And then for the work that we're that's happening in Central Asia, um, there is no public uh forum or anything that's just all done internally. So there's, there's no, you know, unfortunately, there's no way to really share that. Mm-hmm. Which is by design in some ways too because the areas that we operate in are at times can be a bit sketchy especially in afghanistan with taliban movement um, some villages might be safe one year not safe another and so we don't want to advertise where maybe these uh weather stations are or okay. who's working with this nonprofit. you know they'd rather keep it on the down low than sure. advertise it hmm. well that's all pretty interesting doug just to kind of round out the hour, I was hoping you could maybe recount a story or two of when you've been surprised or caught off guard in the in the avalanche world, either climbing, guiding, forecasting, or riding out there. Yeah, there's a few that stand out. Um, you know, luck plays a lot of luck is a big factor here. I mean, there's a reason I'm able, I'm still alive, and I can sit here with you today and talk. Um, it's not all skill. It's not all because, oh, I've got 20 years of avalanche forecasting. There's luck, and I've had some close calls, as most forecasters have, or most people in any profession in the outdoors. Like, you've, you've had some close calls, and I've had them. And in the snow world, I've had a few that stand out. One is um, I was in Cook City. This was in the early 2000s, and I probably had about seven years of forecasting under my belt, feeling pretty good. And we knew the danger was rising. It was snowing out. So at the top of the slope, it's a bit of a gully. And it's snowing out. There's a buried weak layer. We are thinking, we meaning my partner and I, but mainly me because I'm working and he's, you know, along for the ride. Um, I'm thinking, yeah, it's dangerous, but it's not dangerous yet. 
Like it's not quite at that tipping point. And, you know, mistake there, first off, is that I think I can split hairs like that and, and I can't even today. This, this, it's not happening. It doesn't work that way. Um, so we go down and we, we dig a snow pit. And thank God when we dug our snow pit, we dug it right at the top of this rollover. So we were maybe barely an avalanche train, you know. Um, but we dug a snow pit and we did our tests. And the tests were like... Yeah, nothing really happened. And we were like, you know what? Like, I'm thinking, like, the, you know, we're good, you know? And then, like, the test, nothing's happening. I'm thinking, yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's ski this thing. This is gonna be, this is gonna be good. Like, tomorrow, and we actually said, like, we, again, me, I said, like, tomorrow, I probably wouldn't ski this, but right now, you know, seems reasonable. And so we step out of the pit. My partner, puts his skis on the ground and he clicks into his Dinafits. And as he heel clicks into his Dinafit, the whole slope goes kawoom. And right by his feet, the avalanche breaks three feet deep, wall to wall, and goes down. We were not in the slide. And there's our snow pit. There's the crown, you know, two feet below the snow pit. And yeah, we totally choked. I choked in that assessment. I, I should have known better. I mean, the lessons there is, you know, it's snowing out, it's loading out. We have a known weak layer. Again, going back to the basics, like, like who cares what the score is? You know, who, ca who cares that I didn't get a, a, a propagation in a test? It was irrelevant. Um, and that's called a false stable. And so because of that act, that near miss, um, that's when the next year, I think Carl and I did a study using the Snowpilot database on false stables. And we found out that in about 10% of stability tests, they're giving you a false stable result. And so you wanna keep that in mind because if you get a stable test result and you're thinking, hmm, maybe, maybe not, it's worth digging another one because um, chances are that other one might show you that things aren't so hot. Um, so that was a very, that was a close call. Um, another time, again, it had to do with a snow pit where uh, it was storming out. We knew the conditions were bad. We went out again in Cook City. Um, it was one of these where it's like, hey, it's bad, watch me. I'm gonna go out and dig. I go out, I dig. And I find out that I'm digging in the crown of an old avalanche that happened the day before. So an avalanche had ripped like two feet deep. It had filled in overnight, um, happened to be digging in the crown. Um, and I'm really excited about this. I'm kind of pumped. I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, you should come out and see. So my partner slides on out. And so we're both standing in the pit and we're doing our tests and we're all excited because we're standing in an avalanche crown and it had just been reloaded. And we had a conversation the day before. We said, man, when things rip here, they're gonna go on this surface wear layer. And I bet that surface wear layer will reload. That even if an, a slope avalanched, it'll avalanche a second time, which doesn't always happen. But we'd, we came to that conclusion the day before. So here we are out on this slope where we had said, hey, it could avalanche again. We're digging, we're all pumped. And the entire slope goes, wow, boom, and it collapses, crack shoots right through our pit wall, moves like two inches, the slab we're standing on, and does an avalanche. And so we got lucky.
because all it had to be was maybe a little more snow. Who knows why it didn't fully avalanche a second time. But it would have been two avalanche professionals, packs off, shovels out, getting caught in a slide through trees. We would have been both been dead. I mean, because you wouldn't even know how to shovel to dig out your partner because your shovels would have been gone too. It was horrible, horrible, horrible. And so that really changed the way I do snow pits now. Like I'm really, I'm pretty religious about going out on, if I do go out on a slope where I have to be an avalanche train, uh, I go out alone, I dig, I do all my tests. Then if I'm feeling exceptionally confident, then I'll have my partner come out. Because having two people out there your margins are, you're just getting thinner. And again, it, we're wrong. Like I do this for a living. I think about snow more than most people and you get it wrong. So you want to just stack that deck in your favor. And I hope it doesn't happen again, but those are, those were life changing things in terms of how I did business. Mm -hmm. Um, those are two great stories and, and thank you for sharing those. Um, just real quickly, um, I think it's a misnomer amongst especially kind of novice backcountry recreationists that, well, you know, we need to be digging these pits, right, to help us make decisions, yeah. right? Um, I personally think it's a – it's stability tests are not decision-making tools, right? They're data points, and maybe you could talk about that. Right, they're data points until they show instability, then they're decision-making tools. Right. And so um, – Ed Chappelle had a great quote. I don't know it exactly, but it was, you know, where if, if, if you're trying to determine the stability of, of the slope when you're standing at the top of the slope, you're, it's way too late. Mm -hmm. Like you need to be making those assessments on the drive up, as you skin up, as you're heading up, you know, you need, you know over the, the week beforehand. So you have a really clear picture of what it is you're looking for and where the, where the danger might be lurking. And... So when you're, by the time you get to the top of a slope, you're right. Like whether it's with your group or, you know, you've, you've kind of assessed, like, is this really stable or not based on what you're seeing, based on what the avalanche forecast is, um, based on what your partners are seeing. But I, I still recommend that before, if you have all that information and you're deciding to ski, so you've made the decision, like, yeah, this feels good. This looks good. All the, all, everything's pointing, like we're looking good. I say do one stability test because if you're going to go anyway, like, okay, dig the pit. Sure. It'll and if you're quick, I mean, literally like under five minutes, no problem. Like no problem. Mm -hmm. You can do an ECT in under five minutes. Yeah. And why not do one test? And if, if the test, if nothing happens, like whatever, you were going to ski it anyway. Right. But if that test breaks... If that sucker snaps across, like you tap in that and then kabam, it goes across, you might want to have another discussion. Right. You might want to rethink it. You might still decide to go. I mean, I don't know, you know, but, but, but it's going to cause you to pause and to think and to discuss. And, you know, it can't hurt. But it helps could. you slow down. Yeah. Can't hurt, could help a lot. Right. So that's my recommendation is to always just like, if you want to know what's under your feet, you got to look. Right. Well, that's some great advice from Doug Chabot. Doug, thanks so much for making the time today to sit down and chat with me and, and share your thoughts with the community. It was great having you on the show. Thanks for the invitation. I really appreciate it. And as you can tell, I, I love talking about snow. Yeah, it's pretty obvious. Cheers. Cheers. 
Thanks, Doug. Man, and was it refreshing to hear your take on the lack of separation between human-powered and motorized use in the backcountry. Sometimes we humans just like to make a bigger deal out of things that aren't really there. No matter what your mode of travel, we all have a duty to ourselves and our partners to check our egos at the door, be as informed as we can, and try to make the best decisions so we can ride another day. If you like the show, tell a friend about it. If you have things you think I should change, send me an email. I want your feedback. You can find a contact form from my website, www.theavalanchehour.com. While you're there, check out past episodes. Grab some stocking stuffers for your favorite Avalanche Hour fan out there. We've got a full stock of hats, cooties, and ski straps. And your purchases help keep the wheels rolling along. Follow us on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Our artwork was created by Mike T. You demand T. Music today at the start of the show was Somebody by Grammatic. And taking us out of the hour is Boss O Nova by Anatech. Use of these tracks are made possible through the permission of the artists or the Creative Commons license. Have a great first half of December. We'll be back here on the 15th of the month. Till next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Mm-hmm.